So unfortunately, all testing is not perfect, and unfortunately, many women are afflicted with breast cancer. And our next speaker is an individual of remarkable talent that has really made this process somewhat easier for people to live with. Uh, Rochelle Charitz is a two-time breast cancer survivor who founded Charcheret, which was an, or is an organization to connect young Jewish women fighting breast cancer after she herself had a diagnosis of breast cancer at age 28. A graduate of Barnard College and Columbia Law School, Ms. Shorts served as a law clerk in 1999 to United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In November of 2001, while undergoing chemotherapy herself, Ms. Shorts founded Shasheret, a national not-for-profit organization providing support and resources for young Jewish women facing breast cancer. Since the organization's founding, Shasharit has responded to more than 19,000 calls and emails from women with breast cancer, healthcare professionals, and Jewish organizations. For her pioneering efforts in establishing Shasharit, Ms. Shoritz was honored by the Susan G. Komen for the Cure and the Israel Cancer Research Foundation. She has appeared on the Today Show and CBS News and in more than 100 articles. It's a privilege to welcome Rochelle Shoritz. Thank you, Ed. I'm like technologically deficient in this. I've done so much, yet can't seem to work the computer. Thank you. That's perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Um, with respect to Rabbi Willig and Dr. Oster, thank you all for joining me this afternoon to discuss genetics and the Jewish community. I'm honored, truly, to have been invited to participate in today's Medical Ethics Conference. A two-time cancer survivor, I am the proud founder and executive director of Sharsharet, which in Hebrew means chain, an organization addressing the needs of young Jewish women facing breast cancer nationwide. I'd like to take you back eight years in time and begin by sharing my own recent experience, because more than anything, it reaffirms the notion that today's plenary cancer genetics is one that has real impact on the lives of Jewish women and families. Just days before my 29th birthday, I was diagnosed with breast cancer for the first time with no noteworthy family history of cancer. I had heard of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes and knew that there was some connection between mutations in those genes and the development of breast and ovarian cancer but I didn't know enough to question whether my own diagnosis was tied in any way to these two genes. It wasn't until my stepmother, who had lost her mother to breast cancer at a young age, pulled me aside and asked me if I had considered genetic counseling that I began to question whether my surgery and treatment decisions would be affected by the results of genetic testing. Ultimately, I chose to wait for the results of a genetics test to help me determine if I was a true candidate for a lumpectomy or could benefit from a bilateral mastectomy. And that's when I began to understand the true significance of cancer genetics on the medical choices we make as Jewish families. 
Over the past 20 years, the Jewish community has played an increasingly significant role in educating women about the er importance of early breast cancer detection. We have shower self-examination cards in mikvah preparation rooms in many cities. Organizations like the National Council of Jewish Women, Hadassah and Amit have sponsored breast health awareness events. And I applaud the community for attempting to keep pace with early detection efforts. But when it comes to grappling with the issues women face once they're diagnosed, or pre-diagnosis issues that women may face as a result of hereditary breast or ovarian cancer in their family, the Jewish community fell off the cliff a bit before Sharsheret. I was surprised to learn that there were no national organizations dedicated to supporting women fighting breast cancer and ovarian cancer in a community like ours that seems to establish an organization for so many worthy causes. What was the message we were sending in not adequately addressing the health needs of Jews at risk of or who had already developed breast or ovarian cancer? I founded Sharshara to pair young Jewish women with volunteers who can share their personal and medical experiences. And as Ed noted, in just eight years, we've received over 19,000 phone calls from women of every Jewish background, Hasidic, Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, unaffiliated. From Alaska to Tennessee, women are calling to discuss a host of issues, questioning spirituality after a cancer diagnosis, using the mikvah during chemotherapy, bald or with an altered breast after surgery, wearing a wig to cover your head when you're single, a tradition most often associated with orthodoxy and marriage. But by far, the most popular topic in the Jewish cancer community, and for Sharsheret callers generally, is genetics and the role they play in breast and ovarian cancer. Dr. Ostra has already reviewed with us the statistics of hereditary breast cancer in the Jewish population, so I won't spend much time on the, hot, the science behind BRCA1 and BRCA2. But just to review quickly, geneticists have identified thus far two genes called BRCA1 and BRCA2, which they believe play a significant role in increasing the likelihood a woman will develop breast cancer in her lifetime. In the general population, the frequency of a mutation in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene is approximately one in 345 women. In the Ashkenazi Jewish population, the frequency of mutation can be as high as one in 40 women. And this is important. While not every woman who carries a mutated gene will develop breast cancer, the risk of early onset breast cancer is increased significantly. Recent studies suggest that women who carry a mutated gene may have an 82% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. Jewish women, those who've been diagnosed with breast cancer and many who have not, want to talk about genetics. They want to discuss the test you can take to check for BRCA1 and two mutations. They want to discuss their fear of the results, what it will mean to their daughters, their sons, to their sisters and brothers, to their mothers. They worry about the implications of testing positive and the impact on their children's risk of developing breast or ovarian cancer. They want to talk about the consequences of not taking the test, or of taking the test but not sharing the results with their loved ones. They want to discuss the fear they have that knowledge about hereditary diseases in their family will affect their ability to marry, a genetic taint that will mark theirs as an unsuitable family. 
and they want to discuss the difficulty they are having in tracing their family history, much of which may have been obliterated during the Holocaust, making complete and accurate genealogies difficult, if not impossible, to construct. These are weighty issues. Through Sharsheret's National Peer Support Program, we pair women who want to discuss these issues and more with each other in an atmosphere of confidentiality and respect for the individual lifestyles of our varied callers. And through our Genetics for Life program, staffed by a certified genetics counselor, Sharsheret callers can speak with a healthcare professional about their questions concerning hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. I'd like to share with you an email we received from one of our callers because I think it captures the essence of the concerns shared by so many Sharshara callers surrounding our topic today, cancer genetics. A man writes to us, my wife is a 55-year-old breast cancer survivor. Our daughter is 26 years old. My wife is undergoing genetic testing at this time, but we're in disagreement as to what to share with our daughter in the event that the test comes back positive. Because my wife's mother is a two-time breast cancer survivor, my wife has been extremely vigilant in looking for cancer and has prepared our daughter well. With two generations ahead of her, I believe our daughter will be similarly vigilant, frequent checkups and mammograms at the appropriate age. My contention, therefore, that is that it is unnecessary to burden her with the fear that she is any more genetically predisposed than she already knows, if in fact there is no further action she can take. Condemned or defective is the message I fear her perceiving. I don't want her to fear having children. My question is, have these ethical issues been discussed anywhere? Is there any guidance you can share with my wife and me? Well, ultimately, the writer's wife tested negative for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, and he wrote to tell us that he was relieved that he and his wife did not need to make important decisions about how much to share with their daughter. But unfortunately, that is not the case for so many women and men who call Sharsheret because they have tested positive. Take, for example, the father who shared with Sharsheret the following. Three years ago, my daughter at age 36 was diagnosed with breast cancer. Even though she told her surgeon of our family's heavy breast and ovarian cancer history and the fact that we were Ashkenazi, the surgeon never recommended genetic counseling or testing. The pathology report showed a triple negative invasive cancer. It was only then that it was mentioned to me that my daughter should be tested for the BRCA mutations. We both met with a certified genetic counselor and we both tested BRCA1 positive, a classic Ashkenazi founder's mutation. I have been through the breast cancer journey before with my mom and it was a painful experience. I do not feel guilty about passing this mutation on to my daughter, but I do feel profoundly sad that she inherited it and developed breast cancer at such a young age. I have six children and have spoken to all of them about BRCA and the 50% chance of each of them being positive. So far, two have tested and they are both negative. Three remain to be tested and one son told me, I don't want to know now. That is his right, but at least I feel I have met my responsibility as a dad and informed them. Sharsheret provides resources and support for Jewish families like these with questions and concerns about hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. 
I've already noted two Sharsharet programs. Our national peer support program offers confidential peer support and connect can connect women with others who, for example, had to make the difficult decision about whether or not to get tested or who had already opted for the kind of prophylactic surgery a family may be considering. Sometimes it helps to speak to others who understand what you're going through because they have gone through it themselves. Sharsheret's Genetics for Life program provides access to a certified genetic counselor who can address, for example, questions about the implications of testing on health insurance or concerns about the impact of testing on other family members. Very often we think of genetic testing and forget that there's an entire process of genetic counseling that comes before any blood is ever drawn. Sharsheret's Genetics for Life program can help Jewish families address preliminary questions before they seek formal testing. Sharsheret has also published a booklet called Breast Cancer Genetics and the Jewish Family, which you can order free of charge. And our website, www.sharsheret.org, includes the transcript of a symposium we hosted entitled Understanding Our Past, Guarding Our Future. You can learn more about the other programs Sharsheret offers for Jewish families facing breast cancer on the slides included in your handout today. And these are some of those. You've got them in your handout. Sharsheret is a great example of a Jewish communal response to cancer genetics. We've taken a subject, breast cancer, that for so long was taboo in our community, a word literally whispered, and we are generating life-saving conversations like this one today. We're talking about genetics, about hereditary diseases among Jews, welcoming in a new era of information and education. With this new era comes a new responsibility, to alter the legacy of secrecy that has long enshrouded health issues in our community, be they breast cancer, autism, or genetic testing. For some, genetic counseling and testing will lead to action, prophylactic surgery, chemo prevention, or even increased surveillance, being monitored by healthcare professionals who understand your risk. For others who are already vigilant about their medical care and are not prepared for pro prophylactic measures, genetic counseling and testing may mean information that seems more frightening than useful. But I'd like to end by suggesting one simple action that we can all take, regardless of how prepared we feel to pursue genetic testing. Know your family history. Look back and begin to piece together the genealogies that many of our families have no long ignored. Let's pass information on to our children, when and if we are blessed to have them, so that they're educated about their risks and can choose for themselves whether genetic counseling or testing is meaningful preparation. In understanding our past, we can continue to protect our future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are there questions for Ms. Shorts? Yes. Thank you. Uh, Louder. Mm-hmm. Anticipate uh, the, the incidence of male breast cancer and the denial among the general population that it is a real entity and that unfortunately because of the anatomy, you know that it can prove very rapidly fatal. Um, how much, and, and you can um, obviously spearhead this, 
how much of the male population has been informed that, that this is also a very viable, it's not just a female problem. Um, I think that's a very important question, and it is worthy of note that the two emails we received were both from men, fathers in the family. The incidence of breast cancer in men is much, much smaller than that in women, and I think that contributes a lot to the misinformation and the misunderstanding that hereditary breast cancer runs only in women and is a women-only problem. At Charcheret, we're very committed to... Um, to publicizing the fact that breast cancer is a problem in Jewish families. It is a concern for Jewish families and the Jewish community. It's not a woman's issue. Um, I think critical to take away today is that testing happens not just for Jewish women, but also for Jewish men, and that mutations in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene can actually flow down through the men's side. And so when um, a patient is asked for family history um, and is told, oh, don't worry about anything on the father's side, that's actually inaccurate. I mean, I think with time, we're moving past that misperception, um, but I think it's very important to know, particularly in a forum like this, that family history and when I say get to know your family history, I mean fathers and men's families as well. Um, breast, ovarian, prostate, um, pancreatic cancer in the male side is just as important in terms of piecing together a genealogy um, than it is in women's sides. So thank you for that question. Dr. Oster, could you comment on that question? Yeah, I actually wanted to make the point that uh, you just made at the very end there, which is that uh, Men do have these increased risks, especially if they're BRCA2 carriers uh, for uh, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, and melanoma. So it is important for men to uh, understand the risks, have testing, uh, and act on the information uh, if they're positive. Now, we as uh, medical geneticists and genetic counselors can't merely call the fathers and brothers on the phone uh, to tell them, gee, you're uh, you know, your daughter or your sister uh, was a uh, BRCA1 or BRCA2 carrier. It truly is a family affair, as Rochelle was saying. Any other questions? Hi, thank you very much. I, I hope this is not a question that would entail a whole new panel, but I have two brief questions. Number one, how did it come to be that uh, um, genes can be, gene patterns can be privately patented. And two, is that, is that halachically permissible, whatever the law in the United States is? Thank you. Uh, Harry? <laughs> uh, I'll take number one, and I'll defer to <laughs> Rabbi Willig on number two. So, so the short answer to number one is uh, yes, the U.S. Patent and Trade Office decided that it was uh, permissible to patent genes, and we really propose to cut to the core of that. It's a big issue. Uh, there is a uh, HHS uh, Secretary's Advisory Committee on uh, Genetics, Health, and Society that just issued a report saying we don't think that uh, patenting genes and then enforcing the patents for genetic testing is a good idea, and it created a firestorm of criticism uh, from the, uh, from the biotech industry and from pharma uh, saying, you know, we don't agree and your opinions are uh, ill-considered. Uh, but uh, I truly believe that uh, patenting genes limits innovation and limits access to care. I think there are good patents and bad patents, and I think that this is an example of a bad patent. 
I think we'll have to hold off on the answer to the second question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so two comments. Number one, uh, I'm very happy that my daughter did not listen to Dean Bacon. So Dean Bacon is very proud of her uh, pre-med graduates that go on to become physicians. My daughter didn't listen and she became a genetic counselor. So l let's hear it for the genetic counselors. <laughs> Number two, uh, sitting here, I'm looking out at a sea of faces and see very somber expressions on the young women uh, in the audience. Very, very serious and somber expressions. And that's appropriate, but the fact is the purpose of this conference is really should be upbeat because it's supposed to talk about uh, options, uh, opportunities that people have to remain healthy. And I think the future looks quite bright. So uh, this is a good thing. The fact that we're having this conference and what uh, science and medicine has to offer are really good things.